Hello and welcome back to another episode of Behind the Desk with me, Mark Thomas, the podcast where I meet some of the leading figures in the insurance and insure tech space, bringing you insight into their views and opinions on the sector, their career journeys, as well as a deeper look into the actual person behind the desk. Season two of the podcast, you'll probably know by now, is all about the inspiring female technology leaders in the insurance space. We're exploring their journeys, understanding more about what they love about technology insurance, discussing how we can get more diversity and more females into technology and insurance as a whole uh, and a whole load more. In this episode, I bring you Nisha Maniktala, who is the Technology Director for Hiscox Reinsurance and uh, has held previously, well, previously held really senior roles at uh, Auto Protect and Chaucer. Before I get into this, I need to make an apology. Um, unfortunately, the quality of this podcast is not the, the usual quality that we expect. Um, I'm still not 100% sure why it happened. Um, there may be some microphone issues. It was, we recorded this when it was really, really hot in the UK, which is a bit of a distant memory now but we had a lot of air con and fans going on in the background so we've done the best we can with it i apologize that the quality is not not great but uh give it give it a chance and uh and hear it out because nisha is a fantastic guest um i've known her for a number of years now and uh, her career rise into leadership roles has been massively impressive she uh, she holds a really senior role at one of the biggest brands in the insurance space in Hiscox um, and has had a real rapid rise from working in IT operations um, to leading current technology transformation at Hiscox Re. Um, she's also been named a CIO Top 100 before, uh, I think it was uh, for her role at AutoProtect. So really impressive individual. It was great to chat to her and understand more about how she is, has got to where she is right now. The episode gives some brilliant advice on how others can do the same. She's the kind of person you could really see to and talk for hours about this kind of stuff so i hope the uh, the lack of quality doesn't uh, put you off too much give it a chance and uh, and hopefully it can uh, still be a really interesting episode so without further delay let's get behind the desk with nisha manikta nisha welcome to the podcast how you doing all good all good good stuff well um I, as I said before we even start recording this, I always record a bit of an intro, but um, I, I'm sure it doesn't do it, uh, you justice. So uh, can, you, can you give the, the listeners just a, a bit of background on kind of who you are, current role and stuff like that, and uh, a bit of an intro? It'd be great. Yeah, great. So Nisha Manikala, and current role is Tech Director for Hiscox, Ree and ILS. Bit of background on me, done the usual 20 years in tech as you'd expect at this stage. Started off pretty hands-on and, you know, pretty much touched every domain of tech, as you can expect, from data to systems to infrastructure, but have really ended up in the most strategic, the leadership side of technology, and that's really what I really enjoy. So rather than pursuing a more technically hands-on career, I went down the route of strategy and target operating models, so to speak. So, yeah, it's so a current role at Hiscox, and, uh, yeah, that's where I am at the moment. Been with them for about a year. In fact, last month was a full year with them. Amazing. Good stuff. So, so um, I always like to go right back to the start and, and, and talk about kind of how you got into to technology. So take us back, you mean, as far as you want, really. You mean, how, how, what, when, when was the first interest in technology? How old were you? What, what kind of stemmed that, etc.? Okay, so actually interest in tech, I'd have to put this down to my dad. You know, he's always been into his gadgets and I think I took after him. So got into tech at the age of, I'd say, 10 or 11 when I got my first Spectrum 48K. Do you remember those? They were just like little <laughs> yeah, keyboards, yeah. yeah. 
and uh, wrote my first program on it. Uh, nothing amazing. It was literally one of those, you know, those bat and ball games that you get with the line going up and down the side. Uh, so that's really the first sort of interaction with tech, and it just grew from there. You know, did a lot that I could at the time. Uh, and in India back then, there was just no special courses for technology. So you had to learn by yourself or through sort of your self-teaching. Um, did a diploma where I could. So there was this IBM course that landed in India at the time. Um, but yeah, I got my first job as a AS400 consultant, which seems like right. yonks ago now. Uh, started yeah. off on uh, DB2400, AS400, RPG programming, all the usual, you know, the, the black and green screens. So that's sort yeah, of where yeah. my career took off. But I uh, wasn't really happy with that. I wanted to do more. I wanted to do a professional course. So back in... Um, 1999 it was that I, I took a decision to do a master's in computing then. So I did my undergrad in accountancy, but then said, look, computer's where I want to go, and then moved to the, the UK at that point to do a course at the University of Wales in Cardiff. Uh, and oh, wow. that's where I got, got my official degree in, it, in computing. And as they say, the rest is history. Just got a job straight after that, and it's been one thing after another. And then, yeah, we're 20 years later, there I am. Tech. <laughs> So was, it, was your was your dad um, into was he a coder or anything like that or um, was it, he just was yeah. interested in technical stuff? Yes, technical stuff, gadgets. So back then, you know, cameras were big and he had all the fancy cannons of the world and the Likers back then and it was just gadgety stuff that he was into. So he got that ZX Spectrum for himself really, but he hardly saw it because I was always on it playing games and writing programs that were just pointless and meaningless. So yeah, so I, I, yeah, he wasn't a programmer, but he was just into any sort of new tech that came in. And in fact, today he can completely fix his own computer. He doesn't really need help. In fact, he tells me what to do sometimes, and I'm like, great. That's more than I can say for my dad. I'm normally getting called up for IT support, and I'm not even I'm not even really that technical myself. But um, so so that um, so that kind of evolution. That's a really young age, right? Like, I mean, I think I've done I've recorded a good seven or eight uh, of these podcasts already, and and uh, the general theme is that people tend to get into it a little a little bit later on. But obviously, you, you kind of found found that early on. So, yeah. um, but that would have been that would have been a really big step for you to come to the UK to do the master do your master's. So did you come over on your own, or were you like were you with other with your family with you as well? What, what how did that look? Work? Oh, absolutely on my own, Mark. It was a real culture shock when I landed. Very different from India, as you can expect. So a lot of learning to do to understand the ways of the world here. And also it was my first time that I was completely, I had my own freedom. So the only sort of difference there was that I was, I was living with my godmother, my aunt in Bristol and commuting to, uh, to Cardiff for the first six to eight months and then moved into the halls of residence, et cetera, after that. But yeah, it was a, it was a, it was quite a, I hope it experienced lots to learn, lots to experience, but it was fantastic. I absolutely loved it. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so you did that. Was that was that a year or two? Was it how, how long did that go on for? It was about a year and a half, I would say. So you had the twelve months of the course, and then after that, you had the dissertation that followed, the thesis that you had to put together, etc. And that took another six months in. Um, yeah, so about a year and a half, year eight months, something like that. Right. So, so what what did that look like after that? Then, what did you? What was the what were the first few roles? Is that when you went into more hands-on technical roles Correct. initially? Yeah, so straight from from uni then I went into a consultancy 
called net decisions, well now Agilisys, I don't know if you've heard of Agilisys, but they're quite big yeah, in, yeah. in the consulting space, but they were net decisions back then, and, and that's where I started off as a developer really, but it was data developer, did a little bit of Java programming back then, uh, but then sort of, it was more and more on the data side, DBA, senior DBAs, that sort of, that's where I kind of started for the good three, four, five years of my career on the early onset. And, and so, what, at what point did you um, you start to realise that the the kind of more hands-on? Because I think there is there's always that crossroads, isn't there, where someone becomes slightly more strategic um, or, or, or sticks to doing the more technical stuff that they, where they enjoy. When when did you kind of figure that out? Was that was that in the early stages of your career, or was it kind of quite far far through the no, that, that period? I, I'd say about the midway point, you know, so for a number of years, I was very technical, hands-on, and I enjoyed it. So right up until my roles with, I'd say, Ticketmaster and Autoquake, it was very hands-on, uh, coding, data stuff, SQL, lots lots of all of the data development. Um, but it was at Autoquake that that sort of was a pivotal point in my career where there, it was a startup, so there was, you wear multiple hats and there was no one looking after the infrastructure side and systems and there was a blatant gap in efficiencies and issues and I just volunteered and said, look, I'll take care of it. There's nobody to do it. It's not my role. I don't know much, but I'll learn. I'll figure it out. And given being a startup, they were very happy for me to do it because they couldn't afford to get somebody else on. And that's when I landed yeah. the first management position and they said, look, uh, you know, do it. And it was successful. It worked well. And I realized that actually I really enjoy this. I really enjoy going into leadership and looking at how different components of technology can come together to solve a problem. Little did I know then what I was doing was target operating models. <laughs> now I know what target yeah. operating models look like. But back then it was, okay, I need this person. I need that tool. I need this process, blah, blah, blah. Didn't officially call it the target operating model, but you were building all the right things to get the job done. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting because it's, I guess, more of a slightly more organic way of going into something like that and just just mm -hmm. kind of figuring it out. And uh, yeah. I mean, I, I often you often see that um, it's, it's sometimes the best way to learn, isn't it? Like just kind of throwing it in the deep end, figure it out, and uh, and, and kind of get 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 to a solution, and uh, and and then yeah. it becomes more formalised as you go on. So how did that evolve then? What were the first kind of management positions, and what did that what did that evolution look like once you kind of decided that that was more the, your your path? So I think you know, to be honest, I just I didn't have this big plan at that point in my career. It was more about you know the opportunities coming my way. I think from that autoquake opportunity, it was in the in the motor space. So I got exposed to a lot of the way the motor industry worked, and that then landed me that next role again in the motor domain. But that's where I started touching into the realms of insurance, because there was a company, Autoprotect, right. that sold uh, insurance value-added products for the motor for cars. So dealing with the likes of Mercedes or the Halfords and all these car supermarkets, selling you know, policies that they would sell their customers. So we would create those products and they would sell it to their, to their, you know, the car buyers. So I think that's when I got into that first proper head of IT role. And it was at Autoprotect over the years that I then went into the CIO position. So all the way, spent eight years with them really, um, which was tremendous, a lot of learning and growth over that period. Um, and to be honest, I mean, the day I walked in really, I was playing the CIO role. I just didn't know it. <laughs> it was more officially called out to as a latter part of my my tenure with them, but yeah, it was that was my first I'd say proper management stint of getting you know proper 
teams together, working with the business, understanding where we need to go, working closely with strategy. That was the first role that I was really exposed to all of that and, and thoroughly enjoyed it. So obviously you spent a long time there in, in various roles, obviously quite quite a broad remit by the sounds of it, had, had uh, lots of learning, lots of kind of evolution in your career. What was the kind of catalyst for you to move on to there? Because you, you went to Chaucer after, after that, didn't you? Yeah, after that that's role. Right. What, what was the catalyst there? To, to go, I guess you went more into the insurance space. Correct, um, yeah. What was your thought process around that? So I'd be honest with you, I spent a good eight years at Auto Protect, and we were quite a journey, did a lot around claims transformation, and it was even shortlisted for claims awards. Uh, you know, we did a great job across our various platforms and things that we need to do. We had revamped the, the dealer-facing portal. So I think the time was right for me to look at my next opportunity, and I sort of felt that, I really enjoyed understanding that whole insurance side of things. It wasn't motor that I enjoyed. It was actually insurance more than anything. And so I kind of knew in my mind the next step was going to be an insurance company, but the next step was also going to be back proper in the city of London. Now, for me, uh, Auto Protect was, was slightly based outside of town. It was based in Harlow. Um, great job. I enjoyed what I was doing, but the commute was also quite far from where I live in London. So for me, it was also about logistics and you know where I go next, A, it's, it's got to take me to the next step. It's got to be, I had, a, I had this, this big checklist of things. It's got to be insurance. It's got to be that next step up, and and it's got to be back in London. I, I was missing the buzz of being back in the city and and working closely there, and that was really it. I got headhunted for the the role at Chaucer. I hadn't, I wasn't actually applying at the time. It just came upon me, and uh, it was a perfect, it was a great opportunity. And I, I said, why not? Time to try something mm. new. And it ticked all the right yeah. boxes, which is funny enough. So, you know what they say, when you visualize something, throw it out to the universe, it comes and finds you. It did. It does work. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so, so that obviously kind of takes you to kind of near enough where you are now. So, um, you've been in the role for, for a year or so at, uh, at Hiscox. What, what's kind of big for you on the agenda? What, what's the remit of that role? And, and, and what, what's kind of top of your list of things to do at the moment? I'm sure it's a long list. Yeah, there's a long list. So besides, obviously, there's there's a ton of stuff to do around getting our business capabilities where it needs to be, is delivering against our current strategy and the journey we're going on, the usual, you know, top line, bottom line targets, etc. But if I was to really call out one thing that is consuming a lot of my time and thought is really people. So for me, it is it is it's not so much about let's get these initiatives done and delivered. It's actually about the longer game, you know, creating an environment that the team, and it's, going, it's a new team, also, I don't know if you're aware, but we're hiring for a lot of leads. It's a new team. And how do I get everyone together, understand the culture of Hiscox, and create an environment that the team can thrive in, not just survive in, but thrive in? You know? How do we build that long-term career path for, for individuals and colleagues? How do, we, how do we have fun? It's busy. It's challenging. How do we have fun while we do it? You know, I'm a big believer in work hard, play hard, you know? And it is busy. There's a lot for us to do, and it's quite easy to get sort of bogged down in the day-to-day and and forget to enjoy yourself at work. So to me, the biggest biggest sort of you know top of the agenda is really creating that that environment and opportunity for the team, and it's just you know connecting their own sort of you know passion with the wider purpose. You know, so you know what what do they really enjoy doing? How can we translate that into the purpose of the business? Because frankly, I think employee propositions have to go far longer than you know just the basics of remote working and hybrid working or whatever it is and the standard employee benefits aren't enough anymore you've got to create that solid environment for people to really thrive in 
What, what, what do you think you mean on that? What, what do you think, what have been the big challenges for you around that at the moment? Like, is, is there been, uh, it, it sounds like it's uh, a lot of moving parts, moving it together. What, what, have, what have been the big challenges you've had to get over? So uh, hopefully this won't be a surprise to you, but talent retention and talent attraction. So attracting yeah. the right talent in, you know, it's, it's, there is a shortage. I think you'll agree there is a shortage in the industry right now, finding the right people and, you know, employers, I think organizations are paying over the odds uh, as well for good talent. There just isn't, you know, enough to go around, I think. So therefore also, you know, retaining your, your team, it, it just becomes a much bigger priority. You don't want to lose good people at all. So you, you've got to go far beyond your, your employee proposition that has to really be differentiating. And don't ask me what that looks like because that's exactly what I'm trying to work out. You know, how can we create that differentiating proposition that's, you know, better than the rest? It's competitive, you know, and beats the market. Also, what did you I mean? What I wanted to get into a little bit was um, because obviously your your first kind of uh, look at insurance with Auto Protect was obviously kind of add-on insurance for vehicles that, and then mm. then you evolved into a a true kind of London market insurer and, and now moved into reinsurance. How did you find that that change? Because obviously reinsurance is slightly different to what you were doing before, um, and obviously mm. I would imagine the move to Chaucer was was drastically different, albeit still insurance than than what you were doing doing before that. So. How, what, what, what did that? What, how did you find that? What did you see as the big challenges? I mean, quite a lot of people that listen to the podcast, I think, work, have only worked in one area of insurance and maybe looking mm-hmm. at others. So, yeah, how, how, what was that like for you? So I have to say, all three. So Auto Protect also has got completely different experiences altogether. Completely different experience. Yeah. So Auto Protect more that B two B to C. You're closer to the end policy, or you're closer to the middleman, the distribution channel, so to speak. Um, you are dealing with high volume, very low value claims, so lots and lots, but you know, smaller, smaller value. And then moving into Chaucer, you're right, it's more London market, so less frequency, but much larger volume, value rather. Very different in terms of, you know, the, the underwriting and, and everything that goes into it. The analytics is different. Uh, claims processes are different. And then obviously landing in his course, I have to unlearn everything I knew about insurance because reinsurance is now even more, you know, completely on the other end of the spectrum. So heavy modeling, technical pricing, really deep analytics. And, you know, the, the business unit that I work in, Green ILS, I have to say they're incredibly technical folk. It's just amazing to, to watch them in action, to be honest. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's completely different. I think it just stays really, really different across the three. So you, you have to really go in and keep an open mind when you join organizations anyway, even if you are within insurance and you move uh, to another another company, because you always have something done slightly differently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and how do you see, I mean, um, I guess taking this a bit broader now, I mean, how, how do you see the insurance space at the moment? I mean, obviously, you really interesting because you have seen three different types of insurance businesses that are all kind of fairly different in, in, in regards to kind of the way they operate and the industries they focus on. What, what do you see? How do you see the insurance space right now? What do you see the kind of big challenges? What do you think the the, the, the big things are going to be for the next couple of years? That the, again, problems that we need to we need to get past. So I think safe to say, legacy is not just going to disappear overnight. I know insurance companies are spending on tech and data, etc., but legacy is still a big problem. So I think 
more strategic partnerships because what I think insurance companies are also realizing they can't go it alone. They can't do it all themselves, and which is why we do have this this big sort of rising of the insurtechs coming to be because there is so much to go after, right? So I see more of that, more insurtechs, more partnerships, more strategic partnerships. Um, data is still going to be key. I don't think we're scratching the surface with what you could actually do with data-driven decision making. Um, so that you know, all of my previous last three, the, the order protector, Chaucer, Hitchcock, I'd say data was still high on the agenda. Um, so I think more of that, more data-driven, that will just carry on. I think then, you know, there could be could be potential. This is more maverick thinking, I'd say, is if you look at so the organization that I've been reading up, but uh, I did this a while ago, was Pingyan. So Pingyan in China, they reinvented a very traditional financial services business, used technology to really move to that platform business model. So I just wonder whether the sector is ready for it. Is it even possible? Could it be done and applied to the more London market insurers? Could there be certain sections that it could be applied to? So maybe we'll start seeing the introductions of more and more digital ecosystems appearing within within this, this sector here um, and more platform business models taking hold. So if you take even the likes of Vacam who went down, you know, usage-based insurance, embedded insurance products with embedded with products and service providers. So could there be a shift there? And then let's not forget the, the lemonades of the world, right? Lemonade who use conversational UIs, use heavy use of AI and machine learning to, to process claims, to, to detect fraud and things like that. So I think more and more of that. But ultimately, I think legacy is a problem. So insurers are going to have to seek out these strategic partnerships to bridge that gap in their capabilities. They want to keep up pace of change and, and keep their agility. It's interesting what you say about the, the legacy thing because I think that I mean that's common. I mean I think that's that's never going to go away, is it completely? But again, having seen it from a few different angles, how, how do you see the industry dealing with that? Do you think because I think in the past uh, part part of the reason it's so bad uh, uh, right now is because it's been ignored for so long, and and and, and you kind of go in those vicious cycles, don't you? They, they mm. want to change it, start trying to do it, realize it's really difficult, and then kind of put it off for a bit longer and then away and, mm. and, and so on and so on and every year that goes by gets, gets a, becomes a tougher challenge. Do, do you think that the way the sector is, is approaching that now is they're really getting a grip of it or I mean, what, what should, what's your view on that? Well I think the insurance has been known for sort of being the last mover in adoption of tech and data right it was a standing <laughs> joke a good couple of years ago that you know insurance is absolutely lagging behind. So I don't think that's the case anymore. I think the recognized tech and data is important. I think APIs are going to play a huge role in trying to manage legacy efficiently because obviously all this costs money. But if you can find a way to sort of bury your legacy state under a good set of APIs so you kind of can bring in some of the new and keep the old ticking by and then slowly sort of turn it off. I still, I'll still come back to that same point about the strategic partnerships. And this is about bringing in capability for say for the commodity stuff that everyone can do today. So there's some basic things that an insurance company slash reinsurance company has to be able to do. So don't try to build that yourself. Just go out, get an off-the-shelf product, and then you know preserve your secret sauce, build on top of that, protect your IP and invest there, and therefore you can move a lot faster and your pace increases, right? So, and I, and I think that is exactly what insurers are doing. I don't think they think they can do it themselves, therefore, insurtechs are thriving because insurers are taking notice of them and partnering with them. So, yeah, I, I maintain it'll be, it'll be that same view. Mm. 
So what I wanted to move on to is, is just to talk a bit about kind of your advice, really, and like your your, your kind of snippets of uh, of information that you've gathered over the time. So not everyone will be watching this on video, but I can assure you, Nisha is still pretty pretty young. Um, she's she's obviously achieved a lot in uh, in in her career. Look, well, I mean, I, I think what what would be your your kind of and this doesn't need need to just be. I know this is a kind of female focused podcast at the moment, but it, it could be could be to anyone really. I mean, what what are the kind of real snippets of of, of information or advice that you've got that, that someone who, who is trying to move up the curve, maybe someone who is really technical, wants to move into a more strategic role or is just sitting below that CTO, CIO and wants to move up. What, what advice would you have to them there? Is there any snippets that yeah. you, would, you would give? So yeah, so advice to, I don't know, young, young, to young women getting sector or young budding tech leaders, I would say the number one for me has been, you know, build resilience. Because it's it's not going to be an easy ride always. There's going to be challenges. There's going to be hurdles. And the ability to bounce back after a setback or a failure is going to be critical between success and failure. In my personal opinion, I think resilience is number one up there. Amongst the, all the other soft skills that you need, your communication, stakeholder skills, and, and under the strategic head and all of that, I think resilience is absolutely key. Um, other than that, I would say equip yourself with a solid network of peers, whether internally, actually I'd advocate for both internally and externally. So internally within the organization that you have, have a network that you'll go to, you know, who you can speak to for advice, for suggestions and just, you know, to talk through problems, but also have that externally. I think having both is, is really important as well. So I'm on a number of, you know, CIO WhatsApp groups and I, I find them really useful connecting with peers, I meet a few for coffees here and there, and it's really good to connect. It's really good to see what they're doing, how they're solving problems, because that could really turbocharge your thinking and where you should head. It also helps you keep an eye on what's changing in the market that you may not have spotted. So it keeps you ahead of the game, right? So hear it from as many as you can and as often as you can. The other third, I guess, bit of advice I would definitely give my younger self is never compromise your own values. So I'll tell you what I mean by that. So when I was in one of my really early career roles, which was very male dominated, I was the only female there. And I desperately wanted to fit in. I wanted to fit in. I wanted to be one of the lads. And I sort of indulged in, you know, sort of stuff that I wouldn't really. So conversations that weren't very palatable, jokes, you know, swearing on occasion because I wanted to fit in. And looking back now, I, w I would tell myself, you know, celebrate it if you're the odd one out. Don't try to fit in. Don't compromise your own ethics, your values or anything to, to just fit in. And if, if an organization doesn't respect your difference or include you, then go find another organization that will. So move on, you know. Yeah. Don't, don't bear up and don't compromise your own values. So that would be the third sort of bit of advice uh, I would definitely give, give anyone getting budding <laughs> young leaders, especially women, in, uh, in getting into the sector. Yeah, that, I think that last one's a really, really good one. Um, I mean, I, I think uh, almost certainly most of the people in your position um, have spent 20 years in technology or insurance, um, especially mm -hmm. females, will have, will have had to do something along those lines at some point, either kind of try to fit in with a group of men or whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. I mean, what, how, how did you find, because I, I would imagine when, especially going into the more, you mean, like, I, I know what, what technical, really technical roles are like now in, the, in regards to male dominance. Um, I would imagine 20 years ago, that was, that was even right. more so. So how was that at the time? I mean, did that, did that ever put you off or did you, did, did, I mean, what, what was it like when you kind of left university, went into a really technical role? I guess you were surrounded by men most of the time. 
Yeah, I mean, it didn't put me off. Um, I think I just accepted as this is a norm that I'm different as a female. I enjoy computing, but other women don't. And, you know, I've chosen this career path, so I have to just suck it up and deal with it. But was it lonely at times? Yes. Did it feel, did you feel isolated? Yes. But you, you don't really think any different. I guess you just accept it to be, okay, well, this is the way it is. Then if this isn't what you want, then go choose a different career that has more women in it. But, you know, my passion was in tech. So it was something that you just put up with and dealt with and then sort of, you know, it's only now that we're talking about D&I and okay, when I say now, I mean, over the last five to 10 years, it's really taken hold of becoming, you know, top of the agenda and people talking about it and diversity and inclusion and equity. But back then, nobody was talking about it. I, I had a situation at, a, at one of my, my organizations, again, very early career, very early career that I was point blank, you know, told once during an annual review that we all know women don't earn the same as men. You know, so so I've kind of experienced all of that, and you just don't really know whether you you laugh or cry really, because you're thinking, you know, how do you fight this? How do you fight this? And there, and yeah, so you just have to put up with it. And back then there were no real options, and you know, you couldn't do anything different. You couldn't join a company that had more women in the teams because it just didn't it didn't exist. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting because you were saying obviously you're you were saying about you're building the team at the moment, and and and, and like you say, yeah, I think you're right that. Um, Although we're not there yet, the diversity thing is, is higher on the agenda, which is obviously a great thing. Because I think everybody knows, and I think we've spoke about it before, that you have to um, we have to kind of sort the the the, the, the kind of feeding of, of, of uh, more girls into into tech at a young age. That's the only way it's going to be solved, right? Like I mean, the, because the, there's not enough women to go around to solve the problem at a senior level. What what do you think is really important at that entry level to get right for people for for that to, to, to start being told I'm not going to say mm-hmm. sold because that's way too big a question but do you know what I mean what having been through that experience yourself I mean what what do you think we need to do in order to kind of solve that entry level bit because I think that's the that's the golden mm-hmm. ticket is it if you can sort that out no I I agree Mark and, and, and honestly I, I don't really have an answer to that because genuinely it's a case of you know it's a personal interest, right? You choose a career, you have a passion, it comes from somewhere. And how do you, I mean, you could, you could, you could have role models that talk about it. You could possibly hold, you know, the various sort of workshops at universities when people are choosing their subjects or at school rather, not even university. That's late. That's too late already. But in school, in the early years, you know, it, it's bringing, you know, ideas at that early stage. And options for women and I think that's already happening that's already happening so I, I genuinely this is something I always sit and ask myself what could we do what could we do differently mm. at that early stage and I genuinely don't have the answer to it I, I don't know honestly yeah it's, it's a t- it is a tough one you mentioned there about role models and stuff like that that was one thing I was going to ask actually when you were speaking about your kind of rise up and stuff did you, did you is that something you kind of went out to get you I mean I guess you had some role models or, or maybe even mentors throughout your career is that something you actively pursued to to kind of get those people or, or is it just something that kind of evolved by accident do you know what I mean you kind of pinned yourself to people that you could learn from how, how, how did you go about that so, so role models for me, you know, so I was fortunate. So not all my roles were bad. I mean, it sounded like I had the most horrific experience, but <laughs> towards sort of the mid part of my career, I, I had 
a lot of very supportive colleagues and senior managers. So, you know, two two sort of mentors, both male, very supportive with my learning and development. And that just naturally fell in place just because of the, the, the relationship being, you know, uh, in the team and a genuine desire. So that just naturally happened and, you know, maintained contact with them over the years. And, you know, all sort of advice went both ways. When I moved on, it was them also asking sort of, you know, me for 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 tops on things and things like that. So that just happened naturally. Um, and I think, you know, you you. I think now if I was looking back, I would have been a bit more deliberate about trying to find that mentor or even sponsor, you know, because they talk about it's not just mentorship, it's now sponsorship that you actually need, right? Um, so that just happened naturally, but be more deliberate about it, I guess, is, is definitely something that, again, if you're in this workplace, you should try to, to do. Yeah, so if I, have, you, have you ever had anyone come since you've moved on in your career, anyone come out to do that to you? Yeah, I've had a few uh, ex-colleagues who I keep regular contact with and reach out for advice. So yeah, um, from about two different organizations, yeah, and we, we still exchange notes, we meet up once in a while. So yeah, that, that does happen and continues to happen. But not only that, you know, through LinkedIn as well, being a great channel, being contacted to, to act as a mentor for for them. So people that I don't know. Um, and then separately, you know, as much as I can, I do a bit of mentorship on the side through various, you know, programs. So there's, there's a, there's a, there's another program for women in tech where you could volunteer to be a mentor. And, uh, you know, I've been part of that for a good number of years. Recently haven't done much in it because of work being too busy. His cops keeping me too busy. But yeah, that's, that's where I've sort of contributed and, uh, help as much as I can. So we're kind of coming to, towards the end. I, like when I, uh, I always ask the same kind of three questions before we do a bit of a quick fire round for a bit of fun at the end. But um, the first question I always like to ask someone is: obviously, you've been insurance for a bit now, so you're, you hopefully got uh, an answer. You hopefully you do love it. But what is it you love about the insurance space? I would say because it is absolutely ripe with opportunity, given the amount of legacy that exists and there's so much to do that. Anything, any change is really a step in the right direction and you can see, you know, instant value gratification. You know, when your brain needs instant gratification, you get that in the insurance world because there is so much to do. There's so many ex exciting challenges and great problems to solve. So I guess this is exactly why I, I think I, I love being in this space because there's a lot to do. To do. Well, it's good. You've been, you've been here for a while and you still love it, so that's, uh, that's amazing. Um, the next one is, what, what is the best thing about being behind your desk right now? Um, so, I, I would say the best thing about being behind my desk right now is, is a journey that I'm actually going on currently with, with Hiscox Reed ILS. It is a fantastic business unit. You know, I get amazed by the intelligence across the organization. It's also exciting building this new team and going on that journey with them to really get, go after those business capabilities that we're trying to build out and using technology in a really smart way to, to solve our problems. So I think it's, it's this journey that I'm in currently that is, is definitely the best thing right now. And then the last one before we go on to, to some, some quickfire ones, and I'm gonna, I, I used to say I wouldn't get people to answer this question, but they always answer it anyway, so I, I, uh, I will probably get you to answer it. But what, what's the one question I should have asked you, but I didn't? Why do CIOs and CTOs still struggle to get that top seat at the table, especially within insurance? And why do we see them mostly reporting into COOs? 
That is a question you should yeah, have asked me. Okay. I don't have the answer to it, by the way. <laughs> but that's the question. <laughs> well, it would have, have, have been a rubbish question because there would have been no answer. But it's funny you say that, actually, because I was talking to someone actually earlier this morning. So a, a, a guy that I've, uh, I've just placed into a role, so I won't go into the details. But, and we were talking about when we think, because I was reading an article about when the first uh, insurance CEO who comes from a technical background, when will that be? Do you know what I mean? Not, not in an insure tech, because that's slightly different, but actually an actual proper carrier or broker or something like that that comes from a technical background. Um, but I think it will happen. It's just uh, it doesn't mm. seem to be happening as quickly as in other sectors. But I don't know, you, maybe you'll be the first. <laughs> is that the ambition? No, that, I mean to be fair, that's, I, that's I, what I could have asked. So, is that the ambition? So, so not a problem for me, Mark, because I have a seat at the table. So, at his cost, read I less. I am on reexec. So, it's less so a problem yeah. for me, but it's my wider peers that I find is still that big struggle to get a seat at the top table rather than a table. You know, the the, the top yeah. table is still missing. So, you know, I'm I'm quite fortunate that Henry and ILS, you know, they are very much and they understand the importance of tech and data. And so I, I sit uh, with the execs and we're planning, we're doing strategy together, we're going through, you know, people challenges together, we're understanding the direction of travel together. So I'm quite fortunate. But it's a case of, you know, the wider the wider industry sector, you know, we don't see that. If I look at my peers I would say less than 50% sit at the top table. Yeah, I think you're right. There's a, there's a lot that report into COOs, isn't there? They, they still don't have the, that, that kind of um, that direct link in. Do, do you think that that is, um, I mean, not necessarily just for you, but, but like for in the wider sense, so do you think that will start to happen? Can you see a world where that starts to happen, that, um, that CIOs evolve into CEOs in the insurance space? Do you think, uh, do you think that will ever get, get, will ever get to that point? I, I think so. I think we will. I think it's just, it's going to take time because the model is still, you know, the, the tech reporting in a COO model is quite a traditional model. And I think insurance companies, as we all know, are slowest to react to changes in the market and they have done with tech and data themselves. Um, so maybe this sort of new operating model is something that, you know, will, will Penny will finally drop that if you want to compete in this digital age, literally the world is run on tech no different for insurance company too it's not all about your underwriting your underwriting teams can do nothing without the rest of your supporting business functions you need your claims team you need your finance department you need your modelers you need your technical prices you need your actuaries you also need your technology folk you know so i think the penny will drop eventually yeah yeah cool right so as i say i do uh, this quick fire round just for a bit of fun at the end but um the first question is what is the one piece of technology you couldn't live without? So it's going to be an obvious answer, my smartphone. I've managed my life yeah. through my smartphone, so. <laughs> are, you, uh, are you an Apple or an Android? I, I'm an Apple, a hardcore Apple fan. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> cool. Um, which brand or company do you really admire and why? probably just gave away the answers. Apple, Apple's my, my, one of my favorite companies been for a while. But if I were to pick within the insurance sector, let's say, I, I would go with Lemonade. I, I think I was really blown yeah. away with the way they adopted conversational UIs and AI and quite early doors and the fact that you could process a claim in under three seconds. That was, yeah. So I'd be, I follow them with great interest. Yeah, yeah, same. It's uh, yeah, really interesting uh, in business, definitely. Um, favorite business-related book? I'd say five dysfunctions of a team, but I've also got a 
good to great. They're the two. I'd have to say they're equally, yeah, equally at number one spot. Yeah, yeah. That's, uh, I've had a few, a, a few people have said uh, the five dysfunctions one. That's uh, definitely a fairly uh, common. I've come around to lots of people like that. Um, f- favorite film or TV series? Uh, I always say you can have one of each if you want. So it's got to still be Gravity Interstellar for me. I like anything that's out of space and not, not on planet Earth. I love those sort of programs. Yeah. I'm a big sci-fi fan. Um, Series-wise, I have to say, recently got addicted to Stranger Things. So I did when it first came out, but yeah. recently just been watching it back to back. And yeah, Stranger Things for me, and and actually Umbrella Academy. So I love everything that's a bit crazy yeah. and science fictiony. <laughs> yeah, my, I mean to be fair, um, my uh, researcher here and um, Laura actually you know her, um, she is all over that Stranger Things and Michaela, another one. They they keep telling me to listen, uh, to watch it. I, I, I mean, I think I've just avoided it totally because they keep telling me to watch it, but. Uh, obviously yeah, popular. And I, weirdly, I watched Interstellar last weekend, or about a week, or, yeah. a week and a half ago. Um, yeah. I still can't quite get my head around that ending. So you might have to explain that, explain that to me at some point. Um, <laughs> if, if, you, if you weren't a, uh, next one, if you weren't a tech leader or a, te- a techie yourself, what would you have been? So within technology, but not a tech leader or anything? Oh, no, well, anything you want, but yeah, ideally something, if you wouldn't have been in technology at all, and then you were a kid, if you wouldn't have found those gadgets, what would you have been doing? So then I'd probably, I, so I've, I've realised I have a keen interest in sort of house remodelling and decoration interiors, so just over COVID, right, I got the house done, and I actually loved that project, you know, just seeing the house come to be, yeah. and, and I discovered that I really, really actually like that creative side of, you know, just finding what goes in a room so don't judge me with my wallpaper right that's just uh, that was a hit and miss <laughs> but generally the rest of the house looks fairly decent um so yeah i'd say if i wasn't in tech at all probably interior decorating house remodeling something like that property development i don't know yeah. amazing cool um and then the last one is uh, who is your number one female role model i'd have to say indra nui so former chairperson uh, sort of ex-ceo pepsico what is it? What is it about her? I think just her general uh, flair, her leadership style, her you know, her articulation, communication of important topics. So being out there on the forefront, talking about stuff that's top of the mind, but actually saying it. And so just yeah, over the years, just been yeah, she's she's spoken about you know the DNI a lot on DNI. Spoken a lot about burning issues, about getting you know even more women into businesses and senior roles, not just about technology, right, but more about representation of women at boards and things like that. So, yeah, she's um, just, just someone that I pretty much uh, aspire to be one day, you know, that articulate, be able to communicate with that flair. And, uh, yeah, she's awesome. Amazing. Great. Well, look, I mean, that brings us to the end. Um, thank you so much for uh, for giving us some time. I know you're really busy, um, and uh, I really appreciate you um, you spending some time to, to have a chat to me and uh, all the guests. Um, Naturally, off the back of this, um, I'm sure there'll be some people that want to reach out to you and get in touch with stuff. Um, what, what's the best way to, to do that? Is it kind of through LinkedIn? I think you mentioned earlier LinkedIn. Is that the yeah. best way to connect LinkedIn. if they want to, they want to yeah. chat? Yeah, absolutely, LinkedIn, yeah. Perfect. Well, look, I mean, um, thanks, everybody, for listening. Um, if anyone, as I say, wants to reach out to Nisha, do so on, on LinkedIn. Same for me, as usual. Subscribe and uh, and keep listening. We've got plenty more episodes coming up um, for the rest of this series with more more really inspiring technology leaders from the insurance and short tech space. So yeah, as you as you finish up, thanks thanks Nisha again, and uh, we'll see you all soon. Thanks, Mark. 
thanks for listening to this episode of Behind the Desk with me, Mark Thomas. If you like the episode, please subscribe, give us a five-star rating, like and a comment, and even better, please share with your friends and colleagues. If you'd like to connect with me, you can do so at linkedin.com forward slash Mark Thomas and the number zero. It would be great to hear from you. Equally, if you have any suggestions for future guests or other areas you'd like me to explore, it would be great to hear them too. Behind the Desk is powered by Eames Consulting, part of the Eames Group. You can find out more about us at eamesconsulting.com. Thanks again for listening and I look forward to catching up with you again next time.